You appreciate the choir? It's amazing to me how the choir just shows up here on Sunday morning and they just sing like that, you know? You would think they had practiced or something. We appreciate you. Thank you. You know, the choir is uh, practicing already for Christmas, and uh, we always have a Christmas concert, and the idea of the Christmas concert is an opportunity for you to bring friends. And uh, this year, uh, the theme of the concert is how Christmas traditions get in the way of the essence of Christmas. And so I'm sure you have some friends who get all excited about Christmas, but uh, really perhaps don't know the Christ of Christmas. And so we've been praying already that this would be an occasion that you could bring those folks to and uh, they could get the true message of Christmas. So I hope you're planning on that as the choir is preparing uh, for us. Uh, this morning is the last uh, week in Second Peter. We conclude our study uh, this morning from Second Peter. And uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, we'll begin to focus on Christmas uh, from the book of Revelation. You remember Peter here in the third chapter is talking about what's going to happen in the future and how the day of the Lord is going to come and how there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And uh, so I thought we'd just continue a little bit uh, in the book of Revelation and uh, pick out uh, some blessings that come to us in the midst of all that uh, Revelation reveals. But at the end of uh, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, page 1205 in the um, Bibles there in the seats, at the end of uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, three times in rapid fire, Peter uses a phrase. And uh, I just wanted to uh, point this out to you. Uh, verse 11 and 12, he says, since everything is going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you, and here's the phrase, look forward. Look forward. It's a phrase that I think ought to mark our lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Um, verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward, looking forward. Who's looking forward today? We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And then in our text this morning, verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward, Looking forward, three times in rapid succession, he's telling us that Christians who understand what's coming in the future are people who are looking forward. I call it optimists, people who are excited about the future, people who know what's coming. Uh, I would say to you, you know, uh, well, I'd ask you the question, do people who know you think of you as a person who's looking forward? Do people who know you say, you know, He's always looking forward. He's always confident that the best is yet to come, that God has something for us uh, in the future that's better than anything uh, that's been in the past. Because I want to suggest that a very huge benefit of being a Christian is the ability to look forward. And looking forward has a tremendous impact on how we live in the present. A tremendous impact. It changes our whole demeanor when we actually are looking forward to something that we're excited about. And so, in verse 14, uh, where we pick up today, uh, Peter says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward, make every effort. That's another favorite phrase of Peter's, right? Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Christ. Spotless, blameless, 
and at peace with him. Now, the Bible tells us, Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ gave himself up for us to present us to himself as holy without stain or wrinkle or any blemish. Christ gave himself up to create a bride for himself that would not have any spots or blemish. It's the gospel, it's the blood of Christ that washes us crystal clean and enables us to be spotless and blameless before him. And the the effort, when Peter says make every effort, the effort that's involved here is to keep our faith in Christ. It's to keep our understanding and our faith in the gospel pure because this whole book has been about false teaching. This whole book is about how different ideas creep in and rob us of the benefits of the gospel, the pure gospel. And uh, you might remember the issue was that these um, scoffers, you know, said in verses uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 3, scoffers in the last day come uh, with their own evil desires and they're saying, hey, where is this coming? Where is this future that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on like it has in the beginning from the beginning of creation. Scoffers have the idea that everything stays the same, that there's no intervention of God in human history. And so therefore, since our little life experience, everything's been like this, well, then we just project that in the future, everything will stay the same. And uh, these were the false teachers. And if you go back to chapter 2, and um, chapter 2 and verse 13, um, he's talking about these false teachers. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. And then he says this, they are blots and blemishes uh, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. They're blots, they're blemishes. And that's what Peter is saying. Make every effort that you don't have any blots and blemishes. What he's talking about here is the pure faith in the gospel and to not ever lose sight of that, not ever lose our grip on that. He says in uh, chapter 3 and verse 5, the next verse there, he says, These people deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water and by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. Look what that verse says. They deliberately forget two things, creation and the flood. When you get rid of creation and the flood, you have the essence of evolution. We think evolution is a new idea. These were the original evolutionists. Get rid of creation, deliberately forget that God intervened supernaturally and created us, the world in which we live, and forget that God supernaturally intervened with the flood. You get rid of those two things and you basically have evolution as a theory that works. And people are buying into it left and right. And so we have these, the whole premise for evolution is that everything stays the same. And if we assume that everything stays the same and add enough years, then we can get to this theory that's being taught, you know, to our young people and so forth. And so uh, they distort uh, these blemishes. They distort the scriptures. They deliberately forget uh, these things. And when we get into our text this morning in verse 16, Peter's going to say the same thing. Ignorant, unstable people distort the scriptures. They don't take the scriptures for what they are, the word of God. Uh, They use the scriptures for their own ideas, but they distort the scriptures. And so 
when we're looking forward, when we know that God is going to intervene, and when we're trusting Christ that we will be ready, we will be spotless, we will be blameless, uh, it changes everything. Sometimes um, I read at, at the conclusion of our services as a doxology uh, the words from Jude. It's just a couple of pages forward, right before Revelation. And um, listen, you know, to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. How does that happen? How do you get presented before Christ without fault? It happens by the blood of Christ. It doesn't happen by your own efforts. It doesn't happen because you're a perfect person. It doesn't happen because you're faultless. It happens because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so, you know, to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be the glory, the majesty, the power. Don't ever lose your grip on the gospel. And uh, Peter is saying, make every effort. Uh, I am spotless and I am blameless today, not because I'm perfect, but because the blood of Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. And so, uh, knowing that, motivates us to live to please God, to live the life that God created us for. Uh, when you're looking forward and you know that God has covered your sins, don't you sense a kind of motivation? Well, I want to live to please this God. And this great motivation for holy living that begins to motivate us. And so, unlike the scoffers, I understand uh, that the time I'm living in right now is a day of salvation. Next thing Peter says in verse 15, he says, Bear in mind, bear this in mind, that our Lord's patience means salvation. Sometimes we'll get a little disgusted with the life the way it is. We'll watch the news and we'll say, well, why doesn't the Lord come today? Well, I'll tell you why. Because today is the day of salvation. And because why? Because God is patient. Because God doesn't want anybody to perish. And uh, Peter reminds us here that uh, today is the day of the Lord. Um, the, day, uh, the, the day of salvation. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of destruction is coming. The, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, that's coming. But today is about salvation. Today, people still have time to repent. Um, today, uh, Christians still have time to share the good news of the gospel. Uh, one of my favorite uh, descriptions of God comes from Jonah. You remember in the Old Testament, uh, Jonah was a man that God said, I want you to go and to preach this coming day of the Lord, this judgment that's going to come on the Ninevites, which they were enemies of Israel, and Jonah really didn't like those people. And God said, no, I want you to go and I want you to deliver this message. And so, you remember, he runs in the opposite direction. He gets swallowed by a big fish. He gets vomited out in Nineveh. And he goes and he preaches this. And lo and behold, the people repent. And now Jonah is really ticked. And uh, here's what he says. This is, he says um, uh, in chapter 4, he says, I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And he's ticked off because the people repented and he didn't destroy them. And uh, God had sent him to say, you know, this judgment is coming and now the God relents from his judgment because the people repent. And now Jonah's like, you know, just take my life away. 
you know, you sent me to give this message, and now it hasn't come. And it'd be like the scoffers, you know, who are saying, oh, yeah, you tell me there's this day of the Lord coming. The book of Revelation is literal, and someday there's going to be this. But you know what? It hasn't come. And, and so, you know, uh, now we start mocking the person who's delivering the message. And a lot of Christians are silenced by that. A lot of Christians are like, you know, I don't want to warn people that the day of the Lord is coming because it might not come in their lifetime, and then they'll just be thinking I'm crazy, and, you know, they won't want to deal with me and all the rest of it. And as a result, the day of salvation goes by without people understanding what's in the future and what's coming. And uh, it's just tragic. God is a God who is full of compassion and so forth. And uh, so I'm just going to take this thing off because it just keeps, you know who I am. I'm Dave. <clears throat> I keep seeing it out of the corner of my eye. Okay. Bear in mind, verse 15, that our Lord's patience means salvation. And then Peter says a really interesting thing. He says, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. In other words, uh, Peter is saying that the Apostle Paul writes the exact same thing about what's coming in the future and about the day of salvation and what day this is and so forth. And you might remember, this is just kind of an aside, but um, the Apostle Paul got in Peter's face pretty bad at one point in Galatians chapter 2. Um, and, and, and I love that he, Peter writes here, you know, uh, our dear brother Paul, our dear brother Paul, uh, let me just read a couple of verses. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter in front of all of them, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul knew that the integrity of the gospel was at stake. And eventually Peter got to the point where he can write, our dear brother Paul, because Peter understood that the integrity of the gospel is more important than somebody's feelings, even his own, Peter. Our dear brother Paul, and I think to myself, has anybody ever gotten in your face like Paul, called you out on something over the issue of the integrity of the gospel? And so that is not right. That is wrong. And uh, maybe embarrassed you because, you see, it was done in front of other people. And have you gotten to the place in your life where you can be thankful for that person, where you can go back to that person and say, my dear brother Paul, writes the same things. I mean, I just think it's a little aside about uh, Peter's character and how he developed and how he grew and so forth. Uh, Peter got past himself for the sake of the truth. And uh, you'll also notice in this text that Peter says this. He says, um, um, just as our dear brother Paul wrote to you uh, the with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all of his letters speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Peter has some sense 
that Paul's letters, Paul's writing and Peter's writing, are somehow at this early stage on par with Scripture. This is before, you know, the Bible is formed. These are just letters that are going around from churches. But notice how Peter describes Paul's writings. He describes them as Scripture, which is a kind of very early kind of recognition uh, for this to, to go on. And uh, the scriptures, the only other scriptures you could be referring to are the Old Testament. And so Peter has this sense that these writings of Paul and this good news of the gospel that Jesus has come to give is, is scripture. And uh, Peter has that sense pretty early on. And uh, all the way through Second Peter, that's why this whole book is about, hey, whatever you do, don't distort scripture. Don't play loose with scripture. This is the word of God. This is God delivering you know, his word to us. And so Peter's appeal here is to be steadfast, not to compromise the truth, not to faint, not to cave in, not to um, revert to our own understanding over what God has revealed. Don't distort the truth. And I think what Peter is telling us when he says, you know, make every effort, he's not saying, you know, try harder. His appeal isn't, you know, to, um, for us to work at it more. Um, it's to not get away from the truth of God's word from the power of the gospel. Paul says the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The minute we get away from the essence of the gospel, we begin to lose power to live our lives. His appeal is to be steadfast. Don't distort the truth. Um, his appeal is don't get away from the gospel. Don't stop listening to God. Nobody's ideas are on par with God's word. Nobody else's ideas are on par uh, with God's word. Uh, and I would tell you, there's no other book in existence that is as contemporary as the Bible. It's writing to us about tomorrow. The only person who can tell us what's coming in the future is God. There's no other book that's as contemporary as the Bible. And so God's word, it can satisfy, it's alive, it brings peace, it brings contentment. But Peter is saying, hey, read it carefully. You see, in that 16th verse, he says, uh, ignorant and unstable people distort the word of God. And today, we have all kinds, with multimedia, we have all kinds of ideas that come to us from every direction. Uh, and it's people's ideas that often are distortions from what the word of God tells us. And so Peter's saying, read it carefully, read it respectfully. Uh, be careful in your approach to the scriptures. Uh, don't distort. And, you know, they did this in Paul's day. You can even read it in Romans. You know, there were some people who said, oh, Paul's teaching us that salvation is by faith alone in Christ, and it comes all by grace. And so the deal is sin all the more, that you might experience all the more grace. Distortion of the truth. And Paul says, you know, God forbid that you would think like that. Read the rest of the text. And people take little isolated verses here and there, and they make up their own ideas based on that. Uh, the Bible is a whole. It comes to us as a whole. And we need to take the whole Bible as God has given to us. You know, we can't pick and choose. Every once in a while, somebody will say to me, you know, well, I really like that part. I'm like, well, you should really like the whole thing. Because probably the parts you don't like are the parts you need the most, you know. But we pick and choose. And then we make our own ideas about God and about you know, who he is and what he thinks and so forth. It's the whole message and we need to have a teachable spirit. We don't go to the Bible with our own preconceived ideas and then look for proof texts. I mean, that's what the cults often do. 
The, the, the reason that the cults have an appeal to people is because they contain a piece of the truth, but not held in check with the whole truth. And you can make a religion out of piece of the truth. And people are, it appeals to people because it's got an element of truth, but it's not the whole truth. And the Bible comes to us as a whole. And I would tell you that the Bible, you know, it's about God. It's not about us first. It's about God. It's God's story. It's God's perspective. A lot of times people will approach the Bible and think it's all about me. They approach it like a self-help book. Like, can I just find a principle that will make my life easier today? And they approach the Bible like just in bits and pieces and forget to think, my goodness, this is God's story about me. This is God's truth first. You know, uh, I read a great article in um, Christianity Today uh, a while back. And um, it was uh, the thought that everything in the Bible can come down to either law or gospel. It's called like the Bible in two words, law and gospel. And uh, it, it made statements like this. The law of God tells us what to do. The gospel tells us what God did for us. The law exposes us. The gospel clothes us in righteousness. The law crushes us, but the gospel cures us. The law shines the spotlight on what's wrong with us, but the law is powerless to fix us. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Peter says in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, you know, the gospel is that God gives you a new nature. God implants a spirit in your spirit. You have a receptor in your spirit for the very spirit of God, and God implants his spirit and creates a whole new nature, a new life. The Bible talks about us being born all over again. A whole new nature comes to us through the gospel. The law demands absolute perfection. And the gospel gives it to us as a gift. And then this, God's law is inflexible, which then makes the gospel indispensable. You see, the whole Bible is either God telling us what to do, or it's the grace of God, the good news of the gospel. And Peter is saying, whatever you do, don't let go of the pure message of the gospel. And don't allow anybody to distort. Don't allow any other ideas which compete with the truth of the gospel uh, to come uh, and, and to interfere. And so then Peter says in the next couple of verses, verse 17 and 18, he says, Therefore, since all of this is true, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Isn't that great? If you embrace the gospel, you, you live in a very secure position. A very secure. Don't ever let anything uh, move you from your secure position. But instead, verse 18, grow. Grow. Grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Grow. Next year, our whole theme, uh, the elders have approved, is going to be uh, grow, uh, God first believers grow and grow others because relationships are never static and a relationship with God is not a static thing in a relationship you're either growing closer 
or you're growing further apart. Relationships can't stay static uh, for very long. And so Peter says, be on your guard. Uh, don't fall from your secure position, but instead grow. Move into your position more and more. Don't get carried away by error, but instead grow. And uh, I think when you think about this, uh, you're either growing in your love for God. You know, you ought to say to yourself this year, maybe at Thanksgiving is a great time to kind of evaluate this, but do I love God with more of my heart, more of my soul, more of my strength, you know, more of my mind this year than I did last year? Am I growing into this gift that God has given me of a relationship with himself? Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of God. In, in um, Revelation, you know, in the first couple chapters of Revelation, the Lord addresses seven different churches. And when he comes to the church at Ephesus, he says, you know, you guys are doing this and this and this good and it's great, but I have this one thing against you. You've lost or left your first love. Do you remember how excited you were about me when you first met me, when you first embraced the gospel? But I have this against you that somehow you've just cooled off in your love for me. And he encourages them to get back to where uh, he was really first in their life. And I think the thing about growth um, is that it always assumes life. Uh, wherever there's life, there's growth. Wherever there's death, there's never growth. So you can't really grow spiritually until you're born spiritually, right? Is what I'm trying to say. Um, the thing about growth is it always assumes life. Living things grow. And when you become a believer, you're given this new life, this new nature, uh, but there has to be birth before there can be growth. And so sometimes if you say to yourself, well, you know, I don't recognize any growth. I understand the gospel. I thought I embraced the gospel, but nothing's really happening in my life. I'm still the same old person, just have this attachment now onto my life called the gospel. If you're not growing, you might go back and say, did I ever really embrace the gospel to the point that I invited Christ to come and to live inside of my life? Did I ever experience the reality of some new nature coming into me that's taking over my old nature, that's growing inside of me, that I'm changing, that all of a sudden my values are different and my priorities are different and my uh, passions are different because there's this new nature that's growing inside of me. Um, because we need to sometimes go back and, and, and figure out whether we were ever really born. Sometimes uh, people get up against it and and they're surprised, like, oh, I'm so, so surprised that I acted like this. Well, maybe you ought to go back and sort of figure out, did the real uh, gospel ever really get into your heart? Um, the other thing about growth is um, I don't think you can pull it off yourself. Growth is something that happens to you. You can cooperate. I mean, if you take physical growth, you can eat food, you can drink water, you can get some sleep once in a while, and so forth. You can cooperate with what will grow your physical body. And spiritually, you can cooperate with what will help you to grow. But growth itself is, you can't make yourself grow. It's something that happens to you. And in uh, Mark chapter 4, Jesus told a, a little story. And uh, here's what he said. He said, uh, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or whether he gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel, and as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. How does growth happen? Well, you can cooperate. You can water the grain. You can make sure it's in the sunshine. You can... 
you know, pull some weeds out around it. You can uh, feed it. But you can't, you know, I had a, a tomato plant one time, and, and somebody was at my house, and I said, let me go get a tomato. And I go out to the plant, and there's no tomatoes. And, you know, I, I wanted to take the tomato by the stem and just kind of squeeze the tomato out the end. I couldn't do it. You can't force growth. But Peter's saying you can cooperate, and uh, this growth happens from the inside out. It's a, it's a process. And I would tell you that growth is never instant. Sometimes Christians are running around to different conferences or looking for different experiences or different gifts that think that somehow, if I could just have this one experience, I would instantly go from being a baby Christian to a mature Christian. And that's not the way growth works. Growth is never instant. And Peter wouldn't be telling us, you know, to grow if growth was instant. Um, We should be growing, Peter says, in grace. Grow in grace. I would tell you that every single person on the planet is either um, under God's wrath or under God's grace. Every person on the planet is either going to experience in the future the wrath of God or the grace of God. And uh, Peter is saying, when you become a Christian, you're under grace. And so grow in this new life, uh, this grace that God has provided for us. Grow in grace. Grow in the life that you've been given. Uh, Christians are under grace. And, and does, again, we ask the question, you know, does grace increasingly mark the way I think? Does grace increasingly factor into how I feel about myself and about other people and about God? Does, does grace increasingly influence my choices and decisions, my generosity? Grace. Grace is undeserved favor. When you meet somebody and they need something and you say, well, they don't deserve it, that's the opposite of grace. Of course they don't deserve it but they need it, and you got it. And so Peter is saying, you know, grow in this grace, this gift that you've been given, this new nature. Christians are under grace. And then he says, grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Grow in your understanding of the truth. Jesus is the truth. Don't just know the gospel. Don't just know the gospel facts, but know Jesus, right? He's your savior. He's he's your model. He's, He's your God. He's the exact representation of the Father. So you want to know, how does Jesus think? You want to know what was his lifestyle. You want to know what did, what did he teach. You want to know what were Jesus' stories. He told great stories, you know. Uh, what does Jesus say about the devil? What does Jesus say about the future? What does Jesus say about Israel? What does Jesus have as his value? Grow in your knowledge and your understanding, and not just about him, but grow in your personal interaction. Grow in your personal experience of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then share what you know with the next person. Every disciple is a disciple maker. Every disciple understands that what God has given me, he also wants to give to the next person. So every disciple is really a disciple maker. We're always concerned that now that God has taught me this, who can I share it with? And especially about the future, that we know what's coming. And that's what Peter has laid out for us. And so growing spiritually, it seems to me, parallels uh, growing physically. We all start out as babies. And... um, If we stay babies, uh, we know that something's wrong, right? When a physical person doesn't mature, we're like, something's wrong here. Something's not happening. And so uh, baby Christians oftentimes are unstable. They're uh, unlearned, uh, Peter says in verse 16. And as a result, they distort the scriptures. And so I would say to you that, uh, you know, young Christians uh, are easily distracted, easily frightened, easily discouraged, easily shaken, Uh, And always looking for something else. 
Sometimes I think a mark of uh, young Christianity is that there's never like contentment in Christ. Like when I've got Christ, I've got everything, and there's contentment in Christ. And younger Christians sometimes are always looking for, I know I got Jesus, but I need something else, and it's not you know, coming home for me, and, and so on and so forth. And Paul, uh, again, I think uh, talks about this in Ephesians, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Um, he says, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that's Christ, and from whom him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows, builds itself up in love, each part doing its work. Not being... Young people being tossed here and there by all kinds of new ideas and, and things that come along, but finding contentment in Christ. I think, uh, you know, First and Second Corinthians are kind of like a compendium of uh, baby Christianity, right? When, sometimes I'll ask people, I'll say, you know, if you were alive during the New Testament, which one of these churches would you join? Would you ever want to be a member in the Corinthian church, you know? I, I, that'd be the last church I'd want to join, because you read the Corinthian church, it's like all baby Christians. And there are a number of marks in that church that uh, I think uh, alert us to some of the characteristics. Uh, For example, uh, Paul tells us that baby Christians are more interested in the teacher than the truth. Do you remember uh, right at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, he's like, you know, the people were like dividing over I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and and all of that kind of stuff. And today I think that's kind of carried down. People say, well, I'm a Lutheran or I'm a Wesleyan or I'm a Calvinist. How is that different than what was going on in Corinth? And he gets on the Baptist, too, if you read the whole thing there. He's like, you know, people were saying, oh, I got baptized by the Apostle Paul. Paul's like, big whoop. means nothing, you know. And uh, so this whole idea of uh, kind of growing up, uh, there were critics of Paul, you know, the great Apostle Paul. And, you know, you, remember, you read in the Corinthians, you know, people said, oh, he's a shrimp. He's a shrimp. His, his, his appearance is unimpressive. You know, I'm of Apollos. He's an orator. Paul, he doesn't communicate very well. And uh, you had all this kind of stuff. They were more interested in the teacher than in the truth. And um, baby Christians tend to be selfish, right? It's, it's always all about me. Look at the gifts that I have. Remember Paul had to write this whole big thing in, in Corinth about all the gifts because people were like, wow, I got this special gift. And Paul's like, ah, what you think is special is the least of the gifts and so on and so forth. And, and baby Christians make it all about, you ever get in a conversation with somebody and no matter where the conversation goes, it always comes back to that person. And they're always sharing their experience and their good deeds and their, you know, and, and so on and so forth, their activities. And they just have a hard time putting anybody else first. And, 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 you know, Paul says in that text, he says, let me show you a more excellent way. And he talks about faith, hope, and love. Child love is the primary uh, gift and so on and so forth. Children also love what's spectacular. Young uh, Christians uh, want something exciting, want something entertaining. They want to experience things. Uh, but things like study to show yourself approved or meditate or contemplate or read and think and pray. And Peter, in uh, his letters here, talks about a gentle and a quiet spirit. And I would say more mature Christians uh, are aware of uh, some other things. Um, I think when you grow older in the Lord, you become increasingly aware of your own unworthiness and appreciate the gospel so much more. You become aware of this uh, residual uh, old nature that you want this new nature to take over. We start to hate the sin that still marks our lives. 
and we start dealing with it, and that's how we grow. Mature Christians are aware of the spiritual conflict that we have in the world that there becomes less of a desire for the world and more of a desire for spiritual advance. Mature Christians are concerned about different things, have different values. Mature Christians are more alert to temptations and uh, to false teaching, false doctrines, more uh, grieved by the world's drift away from God, more uh, invested in sharing the gospel because we recognize that it's the only uh, hope for anybody. So mature Christians love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, I couldn't help but uh, this past week was the 50th anniversary of the murder of uh, JFK. And, uh, you know, that little line from his speech was repeated time and time again. Um, it's a great line, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And I thought, oh, my goodness, in 50 years, we have totally reversed that whole dynamic so that everybody today is, well, what can the country do for me? And very few people are asking, what can I do for my country? Well, pretty soon you don't have a country. And I thought, you know, the same thing applies to a church. Ask not what your church can do for you, because here's what happens. Usually what's in the culture finds its way into the church, and it becomes the source of sort of false ideas that challenge the gospel. And so ask not, you know, what your church can do for you, but ask what can you do for your church? Because when you do your part, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, then all of a sudden the church meets everybody's needs, and it's there for us in marvelous ways. But when we get that reversed and we start saying, well, this is what you can do for me, and we don't think about what I can do for the church, well, pretty soon there's nothing left because everybody just takes, and that's kind of what's happening in our country, and it drifts into the church. And uh, so I thought this morning in closing, I would just share with you the one last uh, passage of Scripture from Philippians where uh, I think this just accents what uh, Peter was saying and might be one of the uh, places where uh, Peter was referring to, my dear brother Paul writes the same things. Let me just close with these words I'm in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says this, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost, lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and to become like him in his death so that somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then he says this, this one thing I do, this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what is ahead, looking forward. Straining towards what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just pause here because we recognize that you have given us everything in Christ. And Father, the purity of the gospel, as you give us your word and, and as it has come down to us faithfully, help us, Heavenly Father, not to uh, in any way compromise the gospel. Help us to recognize who we are in Christ. Help us, Heavenly Father, to cooperate with this new nature that you desire to grow, to overcome our old nature, that we might be shining lights in the midst of an ever-darkening world in order that you might bring glory to yourself. As we point to you, Father, in our world, so that people might know the source of everything good. 
Help us, Father, desire to know Christ more than anything else for Jesus' sake. Amen.